finish 2 Corinthians 13. Now, uh, I have a few verses here with a little bit of heavy chewing on them, but the rest of them are pretty light fare. They're the, at the end of greetings and uh, so on. And so the goal is finish 2 Corinthians 13 and be done with the entire book of 2 Corinthians today. Then, next week, Carl is going to lecture on Zechariah. We had him do two lectures on Daniel because they had recording failures. And we have four recording failures of Zechariah. So as we have time, I'm going to have Carl do that because we want our Bible study section of our website to be complete. So if people want to study, if they want to use our material for their Bible study, we want them to have all of the material. So they can take it and use it in their home Bible study or however they want to use it. That's the goal of that whole site. But I will do some topics as well. And I have several in mind. And then give Eric a little time to get ready before he goes into full-fledged teaching Colossians. Okay, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the means of grace. We thank you for Christian fellowship and prayer and the study of the Word and the various things you have ordained whereby you sanctify those you have saved. And we do pray for that, Lord. We we all know very acutely our need for sanctification. Lord, we want to be people that display the fruits of the Spirit. We want to be people that uh, display the fact that you are at work in our lives. So as we come every Sunday and put ourselves under your ordained means, we trust you to do a great work of sanctification. Lord, we pray for the scattered flock around the world that listens on the Internet. We pray for their salvation and sanctification as well. Help them find fellowship and make them know that in one sense they're one with us as we are with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Here we go. 2 Corinthians. I was on verse 6, 13, 6. Now, when we, last week when we talked about verse 5, we talked about self-examination in one sense. And that is in the sense to make sure that we're in the faith and not failing the test. But in the context, there's some kind of irony going on here because they're testing Paul. They're not so sure he's really an apostle, even though he had the signs of the apostles. He met the qualifications to be an apostle. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of these things. They're believing super apostles. They're called super apostles in the Greek who came from Jerusalem probably in our reading of Second Corinthians. And they had a different, according to 2 Corinthians 11, they had a different gospel, a different spirit, and a different Christ. And so the Corinthians were testing Paul because these false people had gotten to them. But Paul says to them, they ought to be testing themselves rather than testing Paul. The real issue is if Christ is in them. And if Christ is in them, then they do not fail the test. But here's the irony. If Christ is in them, then obviously Paul preached the right gospel because they came to Christ under Paul's preaching, according to Acts. So how could they have the wrong Christ if they received Christ through Paul's teaching? But... There was the rub. There's the issue going on here. 
Okay, verse 6. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. That's the issue. Is Christ in Paul? Is Paul preaching the cross? Is he preaching the gospel? Is he approved by God? And the answer to all of those things, those questions, is yes. And it's a kind of a sad thing in a way that he has to defend himself to the church that exists because he came and suffered in order to bring them the gospel. I'm going to quote Dr. Barnett on this, but these words are ironic rather than pessimistic. Despite the setback experienced at the second painful visit, 2, 1 through 3, the persistence by some in sexual cultic misbehavior, 13, 2, and so on, and the welcome by some of the preachers of another Jesus, 11.4, the Corinthians have nonetheless responded positively to his most recent ministry, the lost severe letter. Despite disappointments, evidence of God's gracious day of salvation are to be seen in their midst. Ever the positive pastor, Paul looks to his imminent final visit to yield a good outcome for them. So there's an interesting mixture here of rebuke, and encouragement of concern, but yet the desire to show them that Paul does believe that Christ is in them and he does believe that God's going to finish his work in them and so on. But then on the other hand, there's problems that are so serious that if they're not corrected before he gets there, which he hopes they will be, he is going to take action and there will be church discipline. Paul will not tolerate Christians going to the pagan feasts and fellowshipping with pagan deities. You can see that issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He won't tolerate them participating in pagan immorality. You can see that issue in 1 Corinthians 6 and so on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So if he gets there and they're still living like that, church discipline is going to be the result. So we've talked about that quite a few times. And so in verse 6 here, the test here, remember that word, uh, dokimas? It comes up quite often in the New Testament. It's actually a rather important word. There's dokimazo, to test, the verb in dokimas, the test, as a noun. And it's a word from a saying or metallurgy, where you would put some substance into the, what do they call that, a mortar and pestle? You know the thing where you grind stuff up to see what, see what it's made out of? You put something in it and grind it up and put it to the test. Well, they, have, they have something like that for minerals as well, I think. Okay, well, whatever the case, it's, it's like that. And the test is something that God puts us to, okay, or that we ought to put ourselves to, because it talks about that in verse 5 here. But the point of the test isn't to ruin somebody, but to show that there's something genuine there. Yes, Mr. Beers. We were talking this morning a little bit about this Rick Warren, who uh, Jan Markell touched on in yesterday's show. Yeah. Now, if he's in front of a Muslim group and he's not preaching Jesus Christ, he's not preaching the gospel, then, and, and not to be judgmental, but he would, that would be a disqualification, would it not? That's a failure of the test. 
Yeah, well, yeah, one of the topics that somebody asked that I do, okay, in Sunday school here, because I ask people to suggest topics, is this. Somebody asked if I would do one about how you know the Holy Spirit's at work in somebody's life, okay? Because, there, because she ran across some people who were charismatics that told her that if she wasn't charismatic, she didn't have the Holy Spirit at all. And then and said that I don't have the Holy Spirit because I used to be a charismatic, but now that I'm not, now the Holy Spirit's gone. Yeah. So I will, I hope to do that. And I have a, I already, some of these I've done at Faith at Risk, but a lot of times our own people don't get to those, and I would like to get them into a Sunday school. So we want to do Sola Scriptura and the Doctrine of Providence and the Doctrine of how to test the spirits. I hope to get those three. We're, we're kind of running out of Sunday, so because we also need to get Carl in here, but maybe we'll just kind of meter this out or put Eric on hold because he's going to have a baby. <laughs> or his wife is, that is. <laughs> I, I promise you it will affect you. <laughs> Little do you know. <laughs> Having your first kid makes more of a change sometimes than getting married does. <laughs> Anybody know that to be true? Yes, you do. You had last week or two weeks ago asked about worldview. Oh, worldview. Did you just walk away from no, that? No, I forgot. That's four. We've got worldview, providence, testing the spirits, and sola scriptura. Over here. I just have to say something in response to the Holy Spirit leaving. I have seen more lives changed since you've taken that position that I did be, than I did before when supposedly we were part of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's because God uses the gospel to change lives and the means of grace. I did not understand. I think I mentioned this in Sunday school the other day. It could have been the day that the recording failed. I don't, I'm not, can't remember. But the whole thing that was wrong with my theology from 1972 when I started in Bible college till 86 for 14 years or so was I I really believe that you, you you prayed the sinner's prayer and that gets you started and then everything else is figuring out how to I mean that's really how I, I believe the power of the Holy Spirit but I also believed in how to and so everything was an act of the will choose more try harder do more try this do that don't do this do that don't don't do this and I was preaching like that continually, but it was frustrating because it didn't really work. The people would come and end up staying mostly the same as if they had big problems. Gradually, some people did change by God's grace because there was enough Bible taught that if people sat on her, it would do some good. But when we realize that God not only saves us by grace, but sanctifies us by grace, and that God uses means... Oh, that's right. Somebody asked me to do that one, too. (laughs) Well, Eric, it was a great idea (laughs) that you're going to teach. God actually changes people by grace. And if you take a true Christian and feed them spiritual food, they grow just like Brian's tomatoes do with uh, water and sun and fertilizer that, wow, what a revolutionary idea. I just feed them, and God changes them. And so we started on that process, and wow, 
to see God's grace. Now, back to what you said about Rick Warren. That's what we're going to find out when I do that topic. How do you test the spirits? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is speaking through somebody? And it's not that they're speaking in tongues. That's not proof. Okay? It's not proof that they aren't or is. It's just beside the point. All right? That's not the issue. Because if there's a Pentecostal who believes he has the gift of tongues, and that person comes and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I will believe him that he has the Holy Spirit. Because not because he claims to have tongues, but because he's preached Christ. And I know Pentecostals that do that. And so I have to, like this doctor, no, not doctor, but Pastor Powell from Australia. I went to hear him. He's a Pentecostal. He preached Christ. He preached Christ every time I heard him preach. I've got to believe that's the work of the Spirit. All right? You go to hear, I went to hear Rick Warren out in his own church at Saddleback. I listened to him for an hour and a half. He never preached Christ. Not at all. And my friend Chris Riseborough listened for three days, and he never preached Christ. So you got 2,000 people, and you got three days to tell them what's important, and you spend all three days not preaching Christ. Does that mean he doesn't believe in Christ? No, maybe, maybe not. I think he says he does, maybe he does. But why would you believe in Christ and not want to preach him? Well, what more greater joy does a gospel preacher have than to preach the gospel itself? So Chris Roseborough, who, who listened for the whole three days, he says, well, what I heard was, try harder, do more. That's what I used to preach. Try harder, do more. Try harder, do more. Give more of your money. Give more of your time. Join a, a program and do this and do this and do this. Okay, all that may be okay. Maybe the programs are okay. But you need Christ. You could go be a Muslim and go join a program. Okay, so what do those Muslims need? Christ. They don't need a program. They need Christ. So it's only fair to be honest about the test. We're talking about testing the spirits. We need to be honest about the test. We need to be put that ourselves to the test. We're not above anybody else. We're not better than anybody else. All preachers can be put to the same test. Give them a pulpit and listen to them. Okay? And give them the freedom to preach on anything they want. Give them enough Sundays to, you know, maybe for there might be one Sunday where they're on some other topic. But they got a pulpit. they got an audience. What are they going to do? And if they don't preach Christ, the Holy Spirit's not working in their life. That's all you need to know. Now, I will prove that to you from Scripture. I've got a PowerPoint that I'll show that goes through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, so many that it's absolutely could not be challenged by anybody. You, you would be a fool to try to challenge it because there's so many Scriptures. And let me give you one right now, right off the top of my head. He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will testify of me, says Jesus. That's what, is that enough right there? If you didn't have any other Bible verse, you got all the proof you need right there. The Holy Spirit comes, He testifies of Christ. So you're in the pulpit and claiming to have the Spirit and you never talk about Christ. What's wrong? You fail the test. And you can't be upset. You can't be mad. You can't say it's unfair. If somebody listens to it and says, okay, you don't have the Spirit, God's not working in your life, you're not, nobody's being unfair. Because you had your chance. You had your chance to pass the test. And you failed it. Now, isn't this what 
Paul saying right here in Second Corinthians? He preached Christ, so therefore Christ is in him. And, he, and, and Paul preached Christ everywhere he went. In fact, Paul would even rejoice if somebody with vain glory was preaching Christ, because at least Christ was preached. And if that's a topic you never get around to, I'll guarantee the Holy Spirit's not at work in your life. All right, now, dokimas, passing the test. God puts you in the crunch, he puts the flame to you. You know, some, one other way of doing the dokimas, uh, the test, would be like the one in Malachi. Remember the test? Going to be a refiner of silver, God is. And he's going to refine, purify the sons of, of Levi. He's going to put the fire to them. And, and if there's real silver there, the real silver, the dross will come to the top and it'll be burned off or skimmed off and the real silver will shine and reflect the image of the refiner. I haven't ever done that because I don't have enough heat to melt silver, nor do I have silver. But I did it with lead. <laughs> you see, all metals, one of the properties of metals I learned when I was studying science is that metals are reflective or shiny. Okay? Sodium is a metal, and, but it doesn't look sodium. You look at sodium, you never believe that it was a metal because it's always black and kind of grungy because it reacts with just about everything. So sodium is an amazing thing. But if you, if you cut it in two and look, you'll see it shiny on the inside for just long enough before the, the oxygen hits the outside of it. Okay? So you can take lead, which I have that, and you heat it up in your little thing, and you skim the junk off. You can take old tire weights and throw them in there, and the junk will come to the top. You skin it off, and it's shiny when it's melted. melted. So that's how God tests us. He puts us to the fire. He puts us under the pressure. And the genuine Christian will always come to the surface. Okay? The genuine Christian cannot be stopped by testing. The genuine Christian cannot even be stopped under the threat of death. And the Romans even testified of that. You, you see some writings of the Romans who said that. Uh, this Pliny the Younger was writing this thing that's often cited, and he was telling his governor, he says, we found that we don't want to kill anybody who really isn't a Christian. They just went to some meetings. And what we found is if you demand that Christians swear by the genius of Caesar and curse Christ, they won't do it. Okay? So that's what we do. And then if they won't do it, then we know they're really Christians. So then we kill them. And they could not get a genuine Christian. And now, these people aren't any different than you and I. We haven't been put to that test, most of us. Okay? And we might think, well, I would fail on the test. You don't know that because you haven't had to test. Okay? These are just ordinary people God saved out of the Roman Empire, no different than you and I, just human beings saved by grace. And the Romans could not get them to curse Christ. They tortured them. They threw them in fire. They threw them to the lions. They did everything they could. Christian won't curse Christ. Why? Because the real thing will always show itself to be the real thing under the te- fire of the test. Lawrence. Are the tests always specific to Christian persecution, or are there times that sometimes the tests could be considered or classified as struggles of life, illness, struggles yeah. at work, things like that? Okay. That... Th- thank you, Lawrence. Good, very good question. No, it's not always persecution, although certainly that happens. Um, 
I have heard a number of stories. I think I heard four stories in the last week about people that thought they had a Christian marriage. And two people married to one another that both thought they were Christians, but neither really were. And then the one actually becomes converted and gets on fire for the gospel. And that person then is divorced by the, other, the spouse that said that they were a Christian. And it costs them their marriage to be a Christian. But the threat of divorce has never stopped somebody from confessing Christ. Losing family has won't stop somebody from confessing Christ. Being excommunicated by your Catholic relatives will not stop somebody from confessing Christ. The threat of death in a Muslim country will not stop somebody from confessing Christ. Not because Christians are different than all other people as far as their basic human makeup. It's because the Holy Spirit is in us. And the Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. And and you cannot be a, a person with the Holy Spirit and stopped from testifying about Christ. Jail won't do it. And so, Lawrence, it could be the testing is something God is sovereignly in charge of. That's his providence. Well, I'll talk about that, okay? We're not supposed to ask for testing. We're just supposed to endure it. You know, there were some people in the Middle Ages that got confused on this very badly, and they decided, oh, if testing's good, why don't we put ourselves in a monastery, have somebody whip us or hang us on a granite wall with shackles, and then we'll really be good Christians. No, that's not Christian testing. That's stupidity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you just you don't need any more tests than what the Lord sends. I wouldn't volunteer for 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 any that the Lord hadn't sent along. Okay, <laughs> that's just the masochism. All right. So let's let's go and talk more about the testing here, verse seven. But now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved. There's that idea again of the approval or the test. But that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Now, here he's talking about the idea of appearances. Okay? And that had come up earlier in chapter 10, where they didn't like Paul's appearance. They thought his speech was contemptible. They thought he was unimpressive. He lacked charisma. He was no Joel Osteen. Thank the Lord. He was just, well, we've mentioned this before. If you read his litany of what he'd been through in chapter 11, shipwrecked, beaten with rods so many times, whipped so many times, stoned, well, and they had no plastic surgery. Can you imagine what he looked like? He just had to have been totally just scars from head to foot and broken bones that didn't heal straight because it's just the way it was. All right, so... Paul's main concern is for their welfare. They see the heart of the apostle here, the true person of God, the true pastor, the true elder, anyone who's given responsibility in the church. If they are doing what God wants and they're doing it for the right motives, they'll always ultimately be concerned for the welfare of the Christians and not for their standing in the eyes of other people. Okay? When we start becoming status conscious rather than conscious of the welfare of the flock, we are heading for the rocks. Okay? Hearing stories after story, I've I totally lost track of how many hundred stories I've heard from Christians around the world 
that have been mistreated by elders and pastors. I heard another one this last week that's just stunning in its wickedness. And when you hear these stories, you must think, where are the elders? Where are the pastors that, are, that, that, that care about the sheep? It doesn't, we don't need standing. We don't need status. It means nothing. It really does. A whole bunch of people think that you're a great man of God. It means nothing. The reason it means nothing is that the only opinion that counts is God's. And I know that God knows that I'm a sinner. And so the only reason I have standing in God's eyes is because he looks at me and he sees the imputed righteousness of Christ and he sees the blood of Jesus that wash away all my sins. That's how I got standing in God's eyes. But standing in people's eyes is not worth anything. It really isn't. Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, that people would, would fast for days as long as somebody saw them fasting, so they got standing in man's eyes. Oh, look at that Pharisee. He's righteous. He fasted. Oh, look at that Pharisee. He's righteous. He's praying out on the street corner. Probably not to God. He's just praying so people hear how eloquent he is. It's worthless. Okay, so we do you no wrong. In other words, Paul came and did what was right for them, even if it cost him status and standing in their eyes, which it did. He said earlier, if you remember, I'm willing to spend and be spent for your sakes, even though the more I love you, the less I be loved. And so he's doing what is right, and if it means that they don't like him because they have... They've somehow adopted worldly standards about for, for their idea of what kind of a preacher they might want. That is too bad. He's going to do what's right. I was going to quote here Dr. Garland. This statement means that if this letter stimulates their moral reformation, he will have no opportunity to prove his authority through some external display of its apostolic power when he returns to Corinth. He will therefore still lack proof in the eyes of some that he can be bold in person. Remember, they said he has bold letters, but in person, the guy's a pussycat. He's, he's not gonna, no teeth. All he, he wants, however, is their obedience. He has no desire to demonstrate through some kind of apostolic showdown that Christ speaks in him. He just wants this church to quit living in sin. Just, just repent. Quit going down to the pagan temples. Quit practicing immorality. Quit being full of factious pride, saying I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter and I'm a better Christian than the other Christians around me. Just quit doing that. And then when I come, we'll have a love fest and won't have any church discipline or I won't exercise my power. But he does have the power because Christ appointed him as apostle. And he can do it if he has to. But he'd prefer that they actually pass the test. It says here... If they pass the test and know that Christ is in them, then their apostle passes the test as well. Paul is the one who betrothed them to Christ. Love too. Remember that? He says, as a, like a father, he, he, he's in charge of the betrothed virgin. And in Jewish custom, that father was responsible for the virginity of his daughter who was betrothed to a man when the marriage happened. And it would be a horrible thing if that if it wasn't right, wasn't true. So he does that as a spiritual analogy that these ones are like spiritually betrothed and that when Christ comes, they should not be compromised by having gone in with the pagans. All right? 
That's his analogy. So he betrothed them to Christ. And they are the seal of his apostleship in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 9.2, and his letter of commendation of Christ for the world to read, 3, 1 through 3. If they fail the test, then all Paul's work among them has been in vain. If they pass the test, it confirms the genuineness of his gospel and his apostle apostolic authority. So he wants them, if they do what's right, it doesn't care. I really like this verse 7, if you look at the end. That you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. That is, by the super apostles. Paul doesn't care that the super apostles reject him. He doesn't need their approval. Okay? If you're rejected by people with wrong teachings and wrong motives, that's not really ultimately a failure. Verse 8. Verse 8. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. I mentioned this in, I think, last week's, was it last week's sermon? Well, some sermon or another. I had this on a slide. And to make the point that when we speak lies, it doesn't actually change the truth. The truth is what it is. Okay, truth is not a state of consciousness. This book that I quote quite often on postmodern theology by Frankie and Grins, they quoted in my book. They take and they make a category, or they, they take the work of a guy by the name of Peter Berger, Berger and Lackman, and it's entitled "Socially Constructed Reality." All right, so they cite Berger. I've read Berger, and it's not all bad, but they make a category here which makes it into something really bad. Eric and I were talking about this on the phone. They, when they're talking about socially constructed reality, they're, they're using a category from sociology. And what they mean by this, I think reality is too big of a word, and I don't, and I don't endorse them using it, because it, it sounds like ontology. See, sociology is the study of humans in their social relationships. Ontology is the study of being, what is. Okay? So what Grenz does is they take the sociological category, socially constructed reality, and they use it as an ontological category that actually the social interactions of humans actually change the world out there. And then they take on top of that the air of taking the concept of linguistics, that words can create the socially constructed reality, and say that this, that if we get together in a group and change our talk, we'll change the entire world. It'll be a different reality. It's a massive category error. But here's the thing. How many of these young people are going to this postmodern thing catch the fact that it's a category switch? They don't get it. Okay, they don't see it. I was sitting in classes with with really brilliant young people, and when these things were first coming to bear when I was in seminary, and I'd see the air and I'd say something, and these guys said nobody had seen it. They didn't see what was going on. It's a category switch. They're, They're... the pea's not under the cup that you thought it was, okay? If you can think of a shell game. All right. I can believe that the moon's made out of blue cheese, okay? That's my socially constructed reality. I can say the moon is made out of blue cheese. But if they send some lunar thing and scoop up moon and they come back and analyze it, they will not find blue cheese, Nothing changes the real world that God created. Our mind, our, our, our social relationships, our, our, none of these things change it. 
Okay, so Paul says it doesn't matter. I don't care if I don't seem approved. Approved is, is something God grants, not something my social relationships grant. Now, in sociology, really what Berger, because I read Berger in seminary, really what he's saying is this, is that a, a society or a group of people that share religious and social values create what Berger calls plausibility structures. And what's, it, what's a plausibility structure? Well, depending on what your beliefs are, some things will be plausible or implausible. Okay, so let, let me give you an example. Let's suppose that you are a atheistic materialist, and you think actually that human thoughts are nothing more than chemical reactions in the brain that evolved. So all human discourse is meaningless. There were people that used to say that back around the, you know, uh, Bertrand Russell, people like that. Okay, I can't remember the names of the guys that said that. Now the new atheists are claiming to be a little different. But nevertheless... If you really believe that and you have a group of people that reinforce that belief, then it would be plausible for you to say there's no God. Anything that looks like a miracle can't be a miracle. So you have no plausibility in your group for there to be any kind of a miracle. So then, then stupid things become reasonable, like evolution. Okay? That's exactly what happened. I am not faulting Berger for teaching sociology because it helps us understand how people work but he's not actually teaching that just because a group of people believe in atheism that therefore atheism becomes true becomes a reality it only becomes a bunch of thinking in certain people's mind so it's a category switch yes pastor bob can you imagine my parents reaction when i come home from my sophomore year of college and i say i remember i can see the kitchen and my mother and father are there, and I say, I don't believe there is a God. And my mother, she, I mean, I've been exposed to all this relativism and blah, blah, blah. And my mother said, oh, God, forgive her, for she knows not what she does. Wow. My father just shut his mouth and looked at me, you know. But can you imagine my parents' reaction? But you, what you said a couple weeks ago is at least... My parents and the Sunday schools that they took me to all my life gave me a Christian worldview. Yep, and then the school works overtime to get rid of it. I just finished reading uh, David Wheaton's book, uh, The University of Destruction, where he talks about that. I'm hoping to be on his show soon. Troy's working on that possibility to talk about my book. I want to talk about worldviews in colleges. But yeah, people get their worldview challenged at college. They absolutely do. And that's why I am so distressed about this postmodern thing. I have heard reports now from more than one source. In fact, I've heard from two different Christian college professors, one of whom I mentioned before went to a conference where, where it was all college professors and people sharing their papers and their ideas. Post the Stanley Grins that I just talked about, his heir, of taking a sociological concept and trying to make it an ontological one, he's like all the rage. He passed away recently, but his, his thinking is all the rage. And this uh, Dr. Davidson said they were praising Grants for saving evangelicalism from irrelevance. In other words, if we don't become relativists, if we don't believe in socially constructed reality, and we don't believe that we can't know what the Bible means, because uh, Grants 
rebukes people like me for supposed objectivity of exegesis. How silly to think you can know what the Bible means. And this guy is the hero of the Christian college professors that are going to the conference. Then I heard from another professor, and she asked that I don't publicize this because she's paying a cost the way it is, but and so I won't say where from and who it was, but another college professor called me and said, I don't get it. I don't even know what my colleagues are talking about. This is from a Christian college. I don't even know what their terminology means. This was about a month before the, the book was published. And I said, give me your address right now. You're the first one I'm sending a book to. Okay, so as soon as they came here on the truck, I got in there, got one out, sent it to this college professor. And I didn't hear from her for months. So I thought, well... I don't know what happened. I, I was hoping she'd come back and tell me if the book did any good or not. So finally I got an email a couple months later, and, and the email says, I've read your book four times. <laughs> and it explains everything that's going on in this college. This is what they're talking about. So you're sending your kid to a Christian college to be taught postmodern relativism. They won't be taught atheism. They won't be taught, like Gretchen said, there is no God. They'll be taught nobody can know for sure who God is. And so whatever your conception of God is, is as good as anybody else's. And the whole, yes, yes, Cindy. And it is scary. I'd almost rather see them go to the U where they at least expect it. And maybe have their radar up. Okay, yes. Um. Years ago, I was very involved in the education politics about the new education reform that went through in the 90s. And the purpose was stated in the documents that it was to change the fixed beliefs of the students. Yep. That, that is the purpose of secular education. Absolutely. As it was the purpose of Christian education. That's what I'm alarmed about, too, in the colleges. Because they bought into it. The whole emergent thing is based on that idea. You can't know for sure what's true. Yes? Um, I was reading a book the other day, and it was talking about the, the analogy where it's like six blind men, and they're, they're touching an elephant, and they're, both giving, or they're all giving their views on what they think the elephant is. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a wall, it's a rope, whatever. But um, they were talking about this is an analogy on how we, we can't know the truth because everyone. Mm-hmm. But you know what, what you see from that is the narrator can see they're all wrong. The narrator yeah. sees the elephant. It doesn't change the yeah, truth. Absolutely. There's That's, still an elephant. You get great uh, observation. Okay, you get the astute award. <laughs> Thank you. That's the astute award for the day. That's, that goes to the person who makes the best observation in class. It's not worth a whole lot. You get a free cup of coffee like everybody else over here. But uh, the, that's, that's the whole point. The point is we can see. We can look at the world God created and know what it is. We can know. We can understand. And we can be held accountable by God for what we know and what we believe. And so this whole little engine that couldn't, epistemology, the study of knowledge, well, we can't know, we can't know, we can't know, 
It's just baloney. And then they write great big books saying you can't know. Eric, yours is my, I used your story. He, he studied one of these books that says you can't, that the reader determines the meaning of whatever is written. The reader determines the meaning, not the writer. So we, when you read the Bible, you decide what the Bible means, not the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible. Okay? And so Eric read, read this guy's book and had to write a report. Was it a report? Yeah, he had to write a report on it. And he says, well, I think what this guy's book means is that the, re- that the Bible means what it says, or something like that. <laughs> the writer determines the meaning. Yeah. The play- yeah. But I can determine what it says. Yeah, yeah, so, right. Because Eric believed, if he really believed the guy, that he gets to mean, say what it means, so he said it means the opposite. <laughs> and so what's the professor going to do? Give him an F? You're exercising your postmodern right. <laughs> Anyhow, this topic, I'm energized about this topic. And let me, let me say this. And the fact is that this, this whole postmodern emergent, whatever you want to call it, is false. And it's an attack against our being humans created in God's image. And that if you try to apply it to anything else in life besides religion, art, or literature, you would die. You would literally have to die because you couldn't tell the difference between food and poison. I, I quoted Charles Hodge saying that from 1872, that if we don't have such things as causality, sense, sense perception, non-contradiction, the basic foundations of human reason, Created by God when he created us in his image. God did not create human beings to be instinctive beasts. We can't just go out and eat what we feel like and and know it's not poison. We don't have instincts to keep us alive. We have to use reason. We have to teach one another. We have to be taught how to raise our own children. Okay? And when you start attacking foundations of reason, you're attacking human beings at their, making them extremely vulnerable to being destroyed. And the only reason these emergent people aren't dead is because they're schizophrenic. They go in all of other life and act like reason's valid, and then when it comes to religion, it's not valid. Yes? It's a lot harder for our young people growing up today uh, versus perhaps like when I was growing up because we weren't really bombarded with this kind of thing until, I believe, Oh, probably. no. When I was in school, I never there was it wasn't even on a radar. Right. We were there, we were there in school to learn what was true, and we better very well learn it. And we had a lot of authoritative adults in our lives who were going to make sure we learned it. And if you didn't like what was going on in school, you didn't get any comfort going to complain at home about it, <laughs> because the home, the church, the school were all in agreement. <laughs> okay, you. People, young people are up to no good, and we're going to make sure you don't get by with it. <laughs> you're going to grow up. You're going to learn what you're supposed to. And there was no use trying to get out of it, okay? No use going home. Uh, my dad told that to one guy that did. My dad was on school board, and this guy complained because some teacher was an authoritative teacher. Gave his kid a D because he wouldn't do his work. And so my, this guy comes to my dad at a basketball game. My dad is the chairman of the school board, saying, you need to fire that teacher. Give my kid a D. And dad says, well, when I was a kid, if I came home with a D, I'd get a licking from my dad. He wouldn't want the teacher fired. He says, I think the problem is, is your kid. And the guy was going to punch my dad, and they had to stop him. 
Tell your kid to do his work. I'm not firing a teacher. (laughs) I love farmer wisdom. (laughs) We can do nothing against the truth. We can. The word can now sounds kind of uh, innocuous in English, but it's translating the Greek word dunamai. We don't even have the power to do anything against the truth. We can speak lies till the cows come home, and the truth is still the truth. We don't have the power to change reality. We only have, this is 2 Corinthians 13.8, four, by the way, is who pair on behalf of. So when we preach the truth and teach the truth, we're doing something on behalf of the truth. That's what Paul did. He taught and preached the truth, so he's doing something on behalf of it. He's not creating it, but he's pointing out what it is. And the truth will set you free. And the main truth that we need to learn is the truth that is in Christ. If you continue my word, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and truth will set you free. The Christian church exists to be the pillar and support of the truth. That's what the church's job is. This whole postmodern slash emergent, whatever you want to call it, is an attack against even the very nature of the church as the church. And pray for our educational institutions. I think maybe already too late for most of them. But I think that a few remnant-type churches are going to just have to do the teaching. A lot of people are homeschooling. I don't don't know. There's not a lot of support out there for anything Christian. Not in the church nor in the world. But we don't have the power to actually change it. Thank God for that. For we rejoice, verse 9, When we ourselves are weak, but you are strong, this we also pray for, that you may be made complete. Now, the power weakness is picking up from a little bit earlier in chapter 13 where there was three power weakness analogies. Paul's belief and teaching is that God's power is perfected through weakness. And that God allows us to have weaknesses because that's how his power is released in our lives. Okay, so... That Paul was weak, he readily admitted. But that's where grace is perfection, perfected. That's where grace is sufficient. The word made complete means putting in proper condition. Uh, several of the scholars I read said restoration is a better translation. It's in a verb form for, of a word for mending fishing nets. Okay? The fishing net gets ripped up. You've you got to mend it. Remember the disciples were doing that? That's where this word comes from, mending fishing nets. So he wants the restoration of this church because the church was born through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of churches that need restoration. There are a lot of denominations that need restoration because they were born because some people believed in the gospel and preached it. Maybe it was 100 years ago. Maybe it was 80 years ago. Maybe it was two or 300 years ago. But the church exists because of the gospel. And the church needs to be nurtured in the truth. And when the leaders of churches do not do that, you end up with a sick situation that needs this restoration or mending. The word means restoring something to its intended state. What did God intend for the church? Well, he intended us to be the pillar and support of the truth. He intended us to confess Christ. 
He intended us to be bold in the gospel. He intended that we confess the gospel of Jesus Christ even in hostile situations. He intended that we confess the gospel even when our family rejects us for doing it. He wants us to be what God saved us to be. Verse 10, for this reason, in other words, that you might be restored, for this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when I, when present I need not to use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Severity here is a word that means harshly. Uh, it's used in Titus 1.13, the only other place in the New Testament. Harshly or sharply. Evidently, from my research, when it says building up and not tearing down, there's probably an allusion to that passage of Jeremiah. Remember where Jeremiah... Somebody looked that one up. Oh, Robert, you... No, you don't have your Bible out. Sam, Jeremiah 24, 6. Oh, you do have your Bible. Let me, let me see that. This is why I didn't recognize his Bible. <laughs> it looks like an iPod. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm not, I'm not, I guess I'm not up with these latest developments here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's my excuse. Jer- okay, Jeremiah 24, 6. Who's got it first? Uh huh. Okay, the paper. Yeah. Well, he was handicapped. Yeah, he was handicapped because I took it away from him. It's not a fair test. <laughs> Jeremiah twenty four six. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Yeah. So he says, I will build them up but not tear them down. And the word in the Greek. Bible, the Septuagint, is the same as Paul's here. So when he's talking about building up, not tearing down, he's alluding to Jeremiah 24, 6, LXX, which is Septuagint. Okay? But this is what he hopes. In other words, he hopes that they repent first, then he gets there, and they can have a time of edification and fellowship. But if he has to, he'll tear them down if that's what you want to call church discipline. You will not stay in the church Living in immorality, you're going to have to go because church discipline is necessary. But it's not joyful, it's just necessary. Nobody wants, I mean, I know the temptation is not to do church discipline because it's not a pleasant experience. And we've had to do it a couple times recently even, and more than that, I think maybe five or six times since we've been in existence. It's, but you have to do it because otherwise... You just are telling the body of Christ you can live in any kind of sin you want and be in fellowship. You just can't do that because then it misleads the church. Okay, I want to just press on here so I can finish. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete. That's what his prayer is. He says, this we also pray for that you may be made complete, verse 9. And then he encourages them in that line in his letter, be made complete. So he prays for them and tells them to do it at the same time. That's a good, that's a good pastoral uh, idea about what you should do. You should pray for the people that God would make them complete, and you should also tell them that they ought to be made complete. Prayer and action are not mutually exclusive. Prayer and encouragement are not mutually exclusive. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Now, of course, like-minded, in context, we realize, means within the gospel itself. Uh, That's very important. 
Unity is important in the church. I absolutely believe that. But it's got to be unity in the gospel. Okay? If the gospel divides the church, then the church needed dividing. Because it really wasn't a church. It was only partial church. Now, I understand the difference between a visible and the invisible church. But let me clarify what I mean. We have a visible church. Within the visible church, we have Christian fellowship. There may be some within just about any body of believers. They're not truly converted. But they, for whatever reason, they may have false assurance. But they're agreeing to the terms of the gospel. So you still have your unity because everybody in the visible church, whether truly converted or not, is still agreeing to the terms of the gospel. They're agreeing to sit under the gospel. Some people come and say, well, I think maybe, I don't know for sure if I'm converted. I'm afraid I have false assurance. And so then you can talk about assurance, but then I tell anybody like that, and I have said this, sit under the gospel. Sit under the means of grace. Okay? If you agree to the terms of the gospel and you sit under it, then uh, the Lord will make you or give you assurance or he'll convert you if you're not. But if you agree to the terms of the gospel, so the visible church is agreeing to the terms of the gospel. All right? But if you bring the terms of the gospel into a church that hasn't been hearing it and most everybody gets mad and wants to leave, well, then you didn't even have a valid visible church because you didn't have the terms of the gospel. Unity is always unity under the gospel. That's, so to be like-minded is under the gospel. Live in peace. Again, under the gospel. The gospel of peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. Okay? I'm going to preach on this as part of my application this morning. Um, and from 2 Peter 1, where it says, make your calling and election sure. And you might think, well, that's an absurdity. Right? You don't elect yourself. So how can you make your election sure? If God elects you, what do you do about it? Well, hold on. <laughs> right? Right? What did it say right before this? Add to your whatever, knowledge, love, love, brotherly kindness. If these things are in you and increasing, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way you make your calling and election sure is to sit under the means of grace and see the fruits of God develop in your life. And then it says an abundant entrance will be made into the kingdom. But if, if someone has no desire to see Christian virtues or the fruit of the Spirit, they uh, may very well have false assurance. Okay, so having the fruit of the Spirit helps us believe and know the Holy Spirit really is in us. Greet one another with a holy kiss, verse 12. We use handshakes in America. Same idea, but uh, with the swine flu and all this, <laughs> we'll go with the handshake for a hug. All the saints greet you. <laughs> Good. From wherever Paul was, I think, in Macedonia, the saints greet you, the people in Thessalonica. Verse 14. Here's the benediction. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is often called in theology the Trinitarian benediction. So, as you know, the term Trinity was coined later in church history. But we believe the concept of the Trinity is found in the Bible. And here's a verse that has a Trinitarian salutation and so on, a greeting. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we sometimes use that in our services. 
You've been very patient. I got through 2 Corinthians in, what, three and a half years? Three years? We're flying. Woo! We're going to hold Eric to higher standards, though. <laughs> Just te- I like to tease. Okay, thank you for, for that. And we'll, next week, Zechariah, and I'll get right on, on the ball at working on some of these topics and probably be using PowerPoint when I get to them. So God bless you, and have a good time of fellowship, and we'll see you upstairs.